burning. Mountain coal looks like a living thing. It breathes. It mushrooms as it starts to glow. It exhales a harsh chemical smoke. It expands, expressing little cracks, creating surface area. That's why it gets so much hotter than charcoal. That's why you can melt metal with mountain coal, but not with barbecue briquettes from the store. When Joe Scopa came to Harlan County, he was 19. He was hired to work in the Appalachian mines before he arrived in America. That's how desperate mining companies were for skilled labor. Joe's whole family, his dad, his brothers, his cousins, even his grandfather, they worked and lived around the Tom's Creek Coal Camp because Joe's family knew how to cut stone. Back in Italy, the Scopas were rock masons. Stonecutters who had built hotels and motels and bathhouses, all made from native Italian stone. But in America, they were sent into the mines. Five or six hundred Italian immigrants who slept on warehouse cots or in rows of coal shacks, like drones being sent into a black mountain to fetch the coal. Joe came to Harlan County at the age when working for the steel industry was a solid job. He arrived just before the company started buying up their labor towns and setting up the labor stores. Before the companies could dictate the price of everything, even the rent, making living at the mine more expensive than the job itself could earn. In 1919, Joe Scopa compared his situation to slavery. He wrote, quote, This part of the country reminded me where I come from, North Italy. Now that they have all the factories after World War II, all the people moved north. They're just like the southern people here. They left the south and went north because the south is just about like the slavery. That's what's happening in the Appalachian Mountains. It's ironic that an Italian immigrant who arrived during America's gilded age to work as a traditional American job would compare the situation to slavery. It's also worth noting that Joe wrote that in 1919 because in less than a decade, the skilled immigrants who arrived to put down roots would get caught up in a deadly labor dispute. A page in American history known as the Harlan County War or the bloody Harlan Coal Strike, where America proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that if local government was forced to take sides between laborers and the company, they would defend the company with rifle in hand. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then, we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert. And I am the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer lay of no-duh on the internet. Anthony Bourdain once wrote, No one understands and appreciates the American dream of hard work leading to material rewards better than a non-American. In the 1940s, union membership peaked. Pensions, loyalty programs, and benefits were expected. By the 50s and 60s, the middle class expanded. Between 1950s and 1970s, wages doubled. Every generation did their part 
to push fair compensation up just a little until we finally got the quintessential honest blue-collar grunt who lands a solid company job, invests in their future, buys a home, and retires on their pension. But there's a problem with this picture. The era of peak wages that didn't evolve out of company loyalty. And boomers sure as hell didn't trust their employers to have their best interests at heart. Baby boomers working in the 1970s worked a lot of different jobs. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, baby boomers chased jobs an average of 11 times before they retired. There was no company loyalty at the peak of the middle class. In fact, laborers like Joe, who carved a piece of America out for themselves back in the 20s, suffered for it. It was their children who could expect a factory job and their grandchildren who could expect a livable wage. What can an immigrant working in today's labor force expect? What happens if we put Joe, the picture of a hardworking immigrant in America, in today's job market? That's what our myths of today will cover. Myth one, who wants Joe to succeed? Trump's policies have made it hard to enter the country. But what about highly skilled laborers? Could a brain surgeon enter the country? Could a nurse during a shortage? Myth two, we all like to believe we're hard workers, but are we really? Maybe everyone thinks they're hard workers in the same way everyone thinks they're funny. Myth three, we've entered the era of the great resignation. We're all being denied raises, asked to work from home without benefits, and treated like ungrateful children tugging on the skirts of Amazon and Walmart. Maybe we deserve our shabby treatment. Maybe America's people aren't as hardworking as we thought. Todd, did you watch the news um, last year when the Portland police defended the dumpster full of meat? <laughs> no. This, no. I've never heard of anything like that. I, the first thing you said, I think of the Tiger King where they were going to Walmart and taking all the the hot dogs to feed the tigers okay at least <laughs> that makes sense because they were feeding tigers this one and, and please anyone who's listening to this go look it up it was a wild story so last year um it, down on i think foster in east portland i believe uh it's a bad area of portland south yeah. Portland. bad neighborhood a lot of homeless um fred myers they frequently f- throw out their excess food and they will usually throw it out um, like at a time where it's about to be picked up. So like the trash will pick it up. Now, what they claim is that if people go through the dumpster, eat the food, get sick, uh, they are liable. They claim. Yeah, right off when you said that, I didn't think that was the case. No, it's, yeah, it's bullshit. I think that's what you tell kids, you know. Exactly. Oh, it's the law. You can get a ticket for that, you know. Not only that. <laughs> If a dumpster is placed um, off of property, so like at the curb, you are allowed to go through it and take things from it. So if you ever want to go dumpster diving. I was going to say, I have some rich neighbors. I found out we're free and clear to go yeah, <laughs> digging well, through the trash. But I think my neighbors, though, probably eat pretty good food. I've seen them. You, you think know, the- drink good wine. I get the leftovers <laughs> from that. We go get some nice Cabernet from their dumpster. Well... The Fred Myers took offense to the homeless going through their meat dumpster, called the cops, and the cops showed up 
and like stood at this dumpster and defended it. I shit you not. You know, this is going on when we probably were having riots and stuff too. We have a huge drug acid um, problem. We have we have homeless here in um, out in the suburbs now, lining the railroad tracks. There are homeless camps sprawling. I mean, obviously right. through the mid city, well, but the they're stretching out. They had some other things they should probably be doing. Maybe a higher priority. Yeah, <laughs> there. Um, I'm not the police captain or anything, but. The chief of police last year declared that they only had one traffic cop in East Portland doing, you know, traffic, but they could apparently spare a couple of cops to defend Fred Myers. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm thinking this is a, I hate to, we are not anti-police on the show, we are not anti-capitalism, but it seems like we aren't afraid to repeat Harlan County and the bloody Harlan County battle between, you know, corporation. When corporation fought people, the sheriffs, the law enforcement, they sided with the corporation. This is this meat dumpster, which was on national news, was a case of in a very, a very, very small microcosm of. Uh, the police taking side of the corporation versus the people. And for people who don't know, I, I volunteered at a food bank for years and I helped them get food. They get it from supermarkets like Fred Myers. That's where all that comes from. It's food they're going to throw away. Yeah. So you go and pick it up before they throw it away. So it's the same food they'd be getting at a food bank. Right, exactly. Not worth getting catching a bullet over. Or, yeah, I don't know. Right. So this episode, the episode about immigrant work ethic this showed up on our um pitch doc a couple of times why is it so important in today's day and age we have a great work resignation going on right now there's a lot of people who are not allowed to come into this country who could come here pay taxes great citizens send their kids to school and they're kept out and so to me it's concerning that we're not openly recruiting other people to move to this country. Right. Now, personally, I've all my romantic relationships have been with people who are immigrants. So I've lived in immigrant houses my whole adult life. <laughs> and I've worked in um, the automobile industry and I've worked in construction. And all the best employees that I've ever worked with, 100% Joe, are immigrants. You talked about your Mongolian work crew and how they were super industrious. They were. And they went from, I, I had this, a painting company in Seattle, and I had this crew of Mongolians. They were so grateful to be here. They were fresh from their country at the time, fresh off the plane. Um, and they've all been outrageously successful. They, have, they worked real hard. They did clean work. They were honest. They showed up. And now they all own their own companies, and they're all very successful. Yeah. With no English, by the way, not a not a lick, not a word. Um, I, I worked in a loading dock for a while, and I've worked labor jobs before. A friend of mine, uh, Bryce, worked for. Uh, he got me into a loading dock job. He also worked at a nursery, uh, picking up and moving basically fertilizer bags. And he talked about a guy who worked there, um, who was a you know he's from Vietnam. And he was moving basically fertilizer bags. And I was like, oh, okay, he must be here working off his green card. Like, I, I naively thought that. 
And Bryce was like, no, um, he already, you know, he, he came over here on a skilled visa. And I was like, what do you mean skilled? He's moving fertilizer bags. And he's like, oh, you know, Mr. Pham is a neurosurgeon. He went to school and performed brain operations before he got here. Are you shitting me? There, there is still a man. I, I kid you not. Go and meet Mr. Pham in Portland. He works at the Portland Nursery. He is a brain surgeon. We have him moving fertilizer bags. That makes me ask how many other people are like, oh, there's doctors from Congo or there's whatever. Right. In our opening narrative, we talk about, you know, these people who um, were all Italian stonemasons and they made beautiful hotels and they, they cut marble and then they come here. We make them dig coal. So like whatever thing you think is unskilled even if it's like landscaping, you go try to run one of those riding mowers like or, or those levitation mowers or whatever they call it. Like, it doesn't matter what you don't want to do. The thing you don't want to do has levers and buttons that you haven't used before. I was having dinner here before and just kind of prepping for the show and I was talking to a friend of mine and he's very successful and I, I talked to him about he's pushing, he's in his late 50s. His name's Chris. And I said, do you remember when it used to be real pride and being a hardworking American. Do you remember that? That was like a real chip on your shoulder and people knew, oh, you know, Joe's such a hard worker. That's kind of gone now. People are not proud of that anymore. And certainly their kids are not proud of their parents of being hard workers. I think their parents are dumb for working too hard. Right. We used to have the Teddy Roosevelt method of, you know, hard work makes a man and it's good for the soul. Now we more have the, um, was the aunt from Full House? Yeah, Lorianne Laughlin, who, you know, paid exorbitant amounts of money, uh, f- half a million dollars, to get her daughter into college during that scandal, and like she wasn't even on a rowing team. So like we've gone from Teddy Roosevelt saying like you know the the strenuous life is the best to don't do homework, don't do anything, <laughs> don't do anything. Yeah, get the get the best college label and and move on, move to somewhere to collect your check at a data accounting center. And that sounds like an extreme case, but I don't think it is. No. I know uh, a lot of my friends look at their kids and they don't want their kids to work, you know, at McDonald's. They don't want them flipping burgers. They don't want them, they want them just focus on their studies or focus on what they want to do, but certainly not. They say it, but none of their behaviors show that that's an important value to them. Okay, we're going to get into the numbers, so don't spoil too much of that, but we are going to talk about teenagers. Um, f- first, I want to point out uh, intelligent people in America being against immigrant workers has been as old as America, and it has changed over the years. So I want to read you a quote real quick, Todd, to, to if anyone is listening. don't understand this, that because those are the people that need them the most. Yeah. Ex- yeah. <laughs> those are the people that hire them. Those are the people who are shorthanded. Yeah. Um, we're going to start really, really far back. I want to I wanna look at immigrant work ethic from the beginning of Im- what an immigrant is. Oh, Jesus. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I would have cut this off if I would have found out about this. <laughs> uh, you can't mute me now. Um, so in ancient Rome, they had a real issue when Rome started shrinking. Like it expanded, it fractured, it started shrinking, and the population started getting taken over by the Gauls, the, the early French. 
and they were barbarians and they were buying land and coming in illegally. They weren't technically Roman citizens. And there were senators and landowners who were like, we're not going to be Romans anymore. We're going to be, you know, Gaul number two. So the idea of being afraid of immigrants changing your national identity has always existed. In 1775, Benjamin Franklin uh, warned everybody against how destructive German immigration would be. Ben Franklin, Ben Franklin wrote, quote, a colony of aliens who will shortly be so numerous as to Germanize us instead of Anglifying them and will never adopt our language or customs any more than they can acquire our complexion. So I'm disappointed that Ben would think that. Yeah. <laughs> He's kind of a free-willed and do whatever. He, he could live anywhere and just, just fit in. So why would he think that? Yeah, Ben Franklin. Yeah, uh, there, right. there are so many... There are news anchors I'm thinking of right now and people who have spoken out against immigration who who sounded just like that. They don't have the same complexion as we do. They're not going to adopt our language. They're not going to adopt our customs. Those are all from Ben Franklin. Uh, later in 1850s, it was the Irish. In 1880s, it was the Chinese coming over to work the railroads. In the 1900s, it was the Italians, Joe Scopa, who we were just talking about. Here's the real history of America in a nutshell. Americans start hurting because the labor markets suck for a little bit. So the people running the labor markets point the finger at the immigration line. They don't blame the mine company for raising prices. They point at the five or 600 Italians who came over from stonecutters to dig coal. And they say, hey, those guys are making it tough on everybody. Not us setting the prices on, you know, what everything costs in the mine town, what we're charging you to live in our mine houses, um, not the company working everything. In history, this is so well known, like the idea that a company like a mining company will end up controlling the store and the rent under your feet. How did was that allowed to happen? Like, how do we... The, the Harlan County mining incident is basically the thing we now all avoid. Octavia Butler's book, The Parable of the Sower, is an award-winning book because it replicates that in the modern age. It's like, what if all companies do this mining company? I mean, like when people look at what Amazon's doing right now, they, you know, they're setting up hubs and Amazon towns. And we all look at that and say, not again. We're not doing that again. So... Where did this start? Could you walk us through Harlan County? Well, Harlan County, this is rural, rural. And Joe, have you ever been to a mining city, town? I've been to, um, yeah, I've I've been to a couple that were ex-mining towns. Like, I've been out to East Oregon, and like, we have like 100 ghost towns in Oregon, and a couple of them were mining towns. And then those would be thriving, and now they're deserted. They're out in the middle of nowhere. There's no resources. So what happens is, these companies become land barons. This is not slavery, but this is certainly indentured servants. So what happens is they build a town. They build what you and I probably wouldn't consider housing. A lot of times there's no running water. It's poor, poor, poor. Workhouses. Workhouses where kids and family are there. The schools are not adequate. Um, The stores, so they control everything. So you go to work every day. Um, you pay your rent to the boss to the place you work. Um, all the food you buy in the store, the profit, and that goes to the the mine 
owner. <laughs> so you're like on your own island. You're like on your own planet. Okay. So the people running Mars and the Mars crater, they they get to be their own sort of like emperor of this little town. Now what do they need? They need people to pull this coal out of the ground, right? Right. But let's face it, a lot of people aren't going to do it. And we've seen this um, in today's times with where there's all these immigration things going on. A lot of the uh, farmers in the South said, yeah, we try to hire people who are non-immigrants. So they, they work for a day and quit. <laughs> right. So it's a problem. So they need 500 people from Italy, 600 people from Poland who are hardworking um family people to come and live live their life for, for, for their company. It's like giving your life to the company. It's like a, it's not even a marriage. I don't know what you call that. I, I remember a Freakonomics episode recently that was talking about how um, they're having trouble even getting immigrants to, to work the farm jobs now. Like <laughs> they've got like 10 robot machines picking tomatoes, but they can't get one person to stick around and even, you know, even somebody who's working on a visa. So, like, before we had the tomato-picking machine, we had German and Italian and Polish immigrants. So, we at least have people maintaining the the robots that are picking tomatoes now. Was there somebody overseeing or representing these people? They did. They have a strong union leader called Tony Boyle. The problem with Tony was he was not for the rights of the workers. He was not for the right of his own union people. Guess who he was in bed with? Oh, I'm, if he was the Harlan County union leader, I'm guessing he was in bed with the mining company. Too much. Way too cozy with them. So he used his power to hold down um, and make and just, just line the pockets of the, of the owner of the mines and himself. Okay. A man came along. His name was Joseph Zablonski. His nickname was Jock. And he was born in Pittsburgh, PA in 1910. Now, he was a Polish immigrant. He was the son of one. He was a second generation. So he was born here. But his dad was a miner, and he was a miner. So he knew this industry. It was in his blood. He was a generational worker. Okay. His father died a violent death in a mine. So... Jacques' calling, Joseph's calling, was to make mines safer for everybody. How does father die? I always imagine a movie death, like a wall of rocks crushes him. General, it's a mine explosion. Oh, okay. That's worse than I was imagining. It's horrible, right? You're blown apart. Hopefully he didn't feel anything or, you know, seizure himself to death. But it, it left, of course, you know, losing your father. So Joseph, every chance he got, he went after Tony Boyle because he knew how corrupt he was. Tony Boyle had fixed multiple elections. Have you ever, just sorry to stop you again, have you ever been present when a company uh, or um, a group of labor switches to union? Yeah, <laughs> once, I once was. No, they didn't switch, but they were trying to switch and it was ugly. It was the scab. Uh, I, was, I got called a scab. I was working there as a temp. I had shit thrown at me. <laughs> My security company, we had a Tony Boyle. We 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 were all trying to unionize because we were our our medical wasn't being covered, and we had a supervisor who was one of us in quotes, but he got paid from the security company, 
And so he had medical. And so he was like, come on, guys, we can't let them unionize us. They'll, they'll take half our paycheck for, you know, uh, union dues and then do nothing with it. But then we found out he had his medical covered. We didn't. Exactly. That's let's fight to the death, but not my death. Right. Exactly. (laughs) If I was on your same pay plan with your same benefits, I wouldn't be complaining either. I'm guessing Tony Boyle was not suffering like these exploding miners were. He wasn't. And not only was he lying in his pockets, he was borrowing some money illegally from the pension fund and all the stuff that goes along with men and too much power. Okay. He saw Jock, Joseph, this do-gooder trying to take his job, saw him as a threat and threatened him multiple times. Didn't work. Joseph was not going to stand down. He cared too much about his cause. This was his life calling. His father got turned into rock dust. Yeah, I get that. (laughs) He couldn't buy him. He couldn't scare him. So what he did was he sent a hit squad and had him killed. Um, They went to this guy's house and killed him, his wife, and his 25-year-old daughter. They were all shot and killed. Holy God. So this tells you how serious this is. I mean, this was like, you know, <laughs> life or death serious, and not just in the mind, but the politics behind it as well. We had um, we had one of our guys get hurt very badly. He got clubbed in the back of the head, basically, um, by somebody near an ATM. And we realized afterward that he wasn't going to get covered. So, like, we had a injury and all of us were ready to unionize this guy had his family executed like that's like a punisher comic so i i get why they took up arms like why they were ready to go against the company well in one year in 1968 um 78 people were killed okay how'd they die Uh, most of them were sealed off so they were trapped. And so I guess they would have suffocated. It sounds horrible. And um, Boyle, the union leader boss guy, said it was an unfortunate accident. 78 people. That is insane. I don't, yeah, I don't know how to cope with that. Like, it's we not had- just that. He praised the company's safety record. So he covered it up, praised that they're doing a great job, and didn't even meet with the widows of all the men who had passed away in, in the mines. A that real is... lack of compassion or even respect for the dead. That's like Amazon having the, you know, days since an injury, and like they, it's just zero, and they're being praised because they've had five minutes since another person has had their knees torn apart. Right. One guy died today. That's a pretty good day. Yeah, exactly. That's what it sounds like. That's wild. Something else that that you mentioned, um, Italians, Polish, Hungarians, we couldn't unionize right away because we had a bad boss and some of us were Republican and some of us were Democrat and some of us were independent. So we didn't see eye to eye on unions in general because unions are classically thought of as like, it's not thought of as a labor versus company. It is somehow become politicized. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So like did the language barrier between them make it just freaking impossible? You know, this whole thing about the immigration, the different 
people of different ethnicities coming and working together is fascinating to me. There's a um, a documentary called The Men Who Built America, and it goes deep into immigration, and it shows um, how this country is formed and why parts of our country are into the things they are. It's because of immigrants. It's because of all the stuff they brought over. And in these mines, it wasn't uncommon to have hundreds of Polacks and hundreds of Italians. And so as you walk through these camps, it's like you're in Italy, the language, the food, the smells, and then you're in Poland the next block crossing the street. <laughs> and I just thought that was cool. Since we're on the subject, without taking political sides, can we talk about the current foreign immigration policy that is in place? I was going to bite my tongue, but yes. <laughs> um, Todd and I are going to remind everybody uh, we are both apolitical. Well, let me put it differently. We both engage in politics, but we don't pick political parties. We're going to have an episode in a couple of episodes. Um, we got called out for having a few too many left-leaning uh, sources. And by that, I mean like we go to Gallup polls and we go to Forbes and we go to mostly middle-of-the-road sites. And we got called out because I had quoted something from Vox or something like that. So we're going to cover politics eventually. Bless his heart. Um, Joe's such a sweet kid. I shield him from all the real heat we have from our listeners. <laughs> the death threats, the drive-by shootings. I just give him like these. <laughs> I used to be in a cutthroat libertarian debate club. So um, I am not a libertarian, but I will argue anybody that comes at me online. Oh you're, yeah, I've, I've, I've been holding myself back from saying something dumb and critical that will get us banned forever from the internet. For two years, he's kept his mouth shut. Congratulations. <laughs> Um, so without saying a side is right or wrong, we just want to look at immigration standards currently, what laws are in place and how they work. So this is from Forbes. Uh, they are fact checking and reviewing Trump immigration policies. That's the name of the article. Um, they report that most highly skilled foreign born are blocked or denied at higher rates now. Um, High-skilled foreign nationals, so like people with uh, unique or exceptional skills, they went from being blocked 6% of the time back in 2015. So like if you come over and you're, you know, the neurosurgeon who's about to work at Portland Nursery, 6% of the time they'd tell you no, hit the bricks, go back home. Um, Now it's about 30%. So it went from... You know, we block five to six percent of skilled people. Now we block a third of all highly skilled people just because, you know, we. So you're not talking about serial killers or felons from other countries. You're talking about people with neurosurgeons, some sort of higher education in something vocational or academic to be considered a high skilled foreign national. It's my understanding that you have to have a credited certificate degree or something like that. So like, yeah, these are educated when, when Trump went on national news and said that um, we want people's um, educated, skilled people, they're, you know, the, the people with exceptional abilities, we may have wanted them in a motion, but that's not what our current policy shows. It shows we will block a third of people who come with good degrees. So, like, these aren't arts majors that are showing up at our borders. These are people who are like a nurse is getting told to shove off. Um 
And we suspended um, four nationals for their uh, H-1B and L-1. Um, and in the report, like we had a report last August. I'm just going to quote this. Today, even the most highly skilled individuals in the world cannot enter America under the Trump administration's immigration policy. Reports from attorneys and statements from the State Department confirm the U.S. consular office in Europe are denying O-1 visas for individuals with, quote, extraordinarily abilities based on a health pretext. So, again, if you're a nurse or a neurosurgeon or you have a legit degree in something we need, we still have a one in three chance of just straight up saying no. Um, You know, we have a health scare here. Go away. I'm sure some of this is economic. Look, if you have enough money, you're not going to be in that 30%. Right. We would rather blow out the knees of a healthy American in an Amazon warehouse than take your neurosurgeon and destroy his knees in an Amazon warehouse. But just now, um, travel nurses in California, I was reading about this a few months back, a ridiculous wage that they're offering travel nurses, which is a very hard job, very demanding, especially during covid they couldn't get anyone. They can't fill these positions. Even even before COVID. Hour. Yeah. And before COVID, we were losing nurses and doctors. A third of all nurses and doctors will have quit by the end of COVID. And we needed them before that. Their last result was to bring in a few hundred from the Philippines. And that was, they somehow got that. But on a temporary work visa, not permanent. Right. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to permanently fix this. We just want this to be... <laughs> <laughs> deport them after we're done with their tour of California. When we talk about hard workers in the U.S., like, do you remember that old show, Celebrity Deathmatch Challenge? <laughs> yes. Where they would, like, hypothetically put, you know, Rocky Bal or, or still Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger would fight each other as claymation characters in a ring? Yeah, I remember that. I remember that deal with, like, different warriors from different times and stuff. It's yeah. a good show. I, I have a guy that I work with, Norville, who's like, men used to be harder workers and like he's talking about the mining days he is actually talking about like he he speaks as if he was working in a mine in the 1910s <laughs> so i want to do a celebrity death match for like the hard workers of america today this sounds very stupid but like i went looking for does a goldman sachs worker today a 16 hour a day worker for goldman sachs how would they stack up against joe scopa our stone cutter from Italy back in 1930s and how would they compare to like a burger flipper teenager from today and like um you know one of our workers you know locally I like to put one of those guys on a zoom meetings all day (laughs) (laughs) I like to think the miner would like physically cream everybody like they would just clean up but if we're just talking about like could um could a stone cutter mason who's used to like taking noonday naps would they be able to do a 16 hour shift at goldman sachs like like you know who who really wins would a teenager who is forced to study to get into duke university would they really you know are they really getting less sleep than a miner or or are they getting less sleep than a goldman sachs employee so we in america we like to believe that um the the older Americans tell younger millennials, you guys aren't hard workers. And the younger millennials tell everybody else, we're working harder than anybody. We're just in debt. And then folks like Norvell are like, nobody in America today is a hard worker. You haven't seen what a mine looks like. 
Yeah. Um, and then the physical, you know, breathing in all these chemicals, the headaches, the non-sleep, you know, the old Carnegie thing of the steel industry where none of the workers in the manufacturing and steel industry had a gray hair on their head because they were all dead right. before they were old enough to do that because it was such dangerous work. Exactly. They couldn't retire and get cantankerous and tell us we're all weak and soft because they were dead already. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you mentioned something earlier. Uh, well, first off, I want to tease this and say we actually have the numbers. We know how hard workers Americans are. Like we have a statistic for that. We're going to talk about that in the second part, the science part two. But I do want to say, you you mentioned something earlier, you know, who is going to work our burger flipper jobs? That is a huge concern right now, because if I go to Wendy's, like if you and I leave this podcast right now and go get a Wendy's burger, it will take us 45 minutes because they only have one person during post-COVID walkout labor shortage. They only have one person working the counter right this minute. When we passed by it on the highway, there's one person standing in that lobby. Um, so in the business I'm in now construction, I think is even more burning desire. We can live without fast food, building things, the expenses going through the ceiling. Yeah. The housing crisis is crazy. And and just people getting to want to build a new fence, want to paint, they get their house painted, do any kind of improvements or anything, or even maintenance things. It's, it's, it's out almost six months now and they're paying six times more than they did not that long ago. Right. And I remember people saying, you know, you guys want a livable wage to flip burgers, get an adult job. Well, that's the thing is I don't want my teenager working that job. If if I have my kid flipping burgers, I as a parent have done something wrong. I'm not having them study. I'm not giving them the mentors they need to get them into Duke University. I don't have them, you know, uh, working... Uh, volunteering and doing things that will look good and getting certifications that will pad their resume and get them into a higher school. If I have my kids flipping burgers really any point past 14, then I have seriously messed up as a parent. So without teenagers, if we all have them studying like we should, then we don't have those laborers unless we're willing to pay adult wages for a burger. This also obviously goes with saying, I've never seen the Wendy's manager execute somebody with a gun. Um, so we haven't gotten to Harlan County boiling over point uh, quite yet with Wendy's and with the current American unions being formed for like Amazon. When did they hit their boiling point? Like how hot does it have to get in an Amazon warehouse before they start pulling guns on each other? Well, I'd like to unpack the part about living in this community living in these these shanty shacks with no plumbing um kids can't read wives can't read husbands can't read you are in debt pretty much to where you work because they make sure they set the rent and the food (laughs) at a rate just that you can afford so you're broke every day right so think of how hard that is to leave when you're immigrated here, you're in rural America with all those things. I don't have to think that hard. I'm a millennial who has paid rent. And <laughs> when rent exceeds 40% of your income and the rest is medical, then... But I see what you're saying, yes. Yeah, do you speak a different language? You're, I mean, it's tough. 
Yeah. You know, and you're fucking tired. <laughs> yeah. Let's not forget the most important thing. And I don't just mean the husbands and the minds. I mean the whole family. This thing in Harlan, it, it, it boiled over based on them wanting to unionize. Okay. So half of the place wanted to unionize. The other half didn't. And then it just became a war. And when I say war, people going to work in the morning, in the dark of the morning, were worried about getting shot by the strikers. Now, when I, when I first watched the Harlan County documentary that we're going to have a link to, I watched it with the mind of this was America versus a corporation. I did not look at this from the right light. I did not think of this as this was a bunch of immigrants and Americans who ended up coming to this spot and accidentally ended up in the fight that kind of set the mood for America and corporations. You get what I'm saying? Like I, I used to think this was like, this to me was the picture of all of those, the, the old classic black and white of those Americans on the skyscraper beam. And you can see New York behind them. Like as a classic picture of American grit and toil and workmen with their steel lunch boxes sitting next to them on a beam balancing while they eat their sandwiches. That's how I saw Harlan County is I saw it as this American icon. Now we're looking at it and it's like, here are all these immigrants that got blown up and then they fought for America, even though they just wanted to not, not get paid. They, they just wanted a little bit of money after the day. And they would have been happy with just a little bit more. I think it's funny you kind of put this in my brain, but you notice that during that they didn't talk about immigrants. All the people they showed in that movie were all. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> they so, never. So they even got in their own movie got demoted because they were. Hey, don't put the Italians. Don't put the Wops in the movie. You know. <laughs> yeah, like we're talking about the Irish immigrants walking off the job, the Polish there, and it's like, how did that not show up in the documentary? All we heard about were these like. Appalachian Southerners with the the songs and the accents and it's like wait a sec this is not just an American you know this was an American issue but this is non-Americans coming together to work and seeing this as a uniquely American issue and this documentary is going to pull at your heart you're going to see the people who are the protesters who wanted to earn a living wage and make a better life for their family they weren't asking for much they were at churches they were rallying they were sticking together and then on the other side, these people who talk like them, look like them, from the same, grew up with them, worked with them for years, went to school with them, hating them, thinking of them as being socialist, communist, and trying to not just ruin Harlan County, but ruin America. And <laughs> they take this very seriously. Um, shoot you on your way to work serious. Right. These people are walking out of the mine every day with a deficit, like, like, their debt is growing every day they walk out of the mine because they are living in the mine town and people who speak the same language and have the same accent are calling them socialists and telling them, I hope you die. Like literally telling them, I hope rocks crush you, which is so fucking crazy. Like that is, yeah, that, that kills me. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm fired up, but I, I want to get to our, our final science point, basically. Um, now that we're into the nitty gritty, are we, you know, is, is the old man I work with, Norville, is he right? Are we actually, you know, weaker? Uh, have we all become, 
lazy workers compared to our mining, uh, you know, forefathers. Uh, in our celebrity deathmatch of hard workers, who wins? I'm thinking we're better thinkers now with computers and, and everything, but we're not as physical. <laughs> Does that make sense? You are, I'm going to spoil it. You're dead on. Um, okay. So if we're just talking brute strength, grip strength over the last couple generations has gone down. Grip strength is what scientists use to just gauge overall physical strength. That's like a good metric. Um, so yeah, we have gotten physically weaker. However, if you gauge our productivity as a country, our productivity, just take everybody, everyone all across America, put them in a single bucket and weigh them against, you know, units of output versus units of input. We have gone up. We have gone up over the past 10, 20, 30 years. Um, okay, I'm going to share with you um, first the, the equation and then what the graph says. Um now, this is, this is famously called the productivity graph or the productivity formula. Um, we're going to go for uh, an article from Harvard Business Review because there are um, people online who argue over how you should measure productivity. Um, like productivity measurement, by the way, there are rare things where I will read for our, our podcast where I feel stupid. I will read medical information. I will read taxes. I will read like I, <laughs> I accidentally researched my way into an investigator's degree, um, license. I will read anything just because it's interesting, weird, or quirky. This one took me so many times to read through, just to like understand the fundamentals because I'm not an economist. This is I love, heavy. This is heavy. This yeah, is I your, love reading about economy, but it's not your lane. No, not necessarily. Um, but I, I got enough to, to get why there was a disagreement here. Productivity basically uh, shows the overall capabilities of a country. Um, how good is your company at taking raw materials and turning it into a good or a service? That's really all we're measuring in productivity. And that is according to Harvard Business Review. The formula that HBR and most of America and their companies use, productivity equals units of output over units of input. That is the plainest, simplest way to put it. Now... Simple's good. Simple's good. Yeah. Um, the U.S. as an industry and labor, they have other measures. And I will recognize for the people who would argue with us that... There are other measures, but this is generally accepted as the gold standard for measuring productivity. If you look at it this way, and I encourage anyone listening to our voices, go look up the productivity um, formula and the productivity graph of America. It has gone up like a hockey stick. <laughs> like America, if you look at like back in the 1970s, so um, this is going into um, something called the 1979 pay gap. Um, there is a graph here from the EPI. Now, this is the gap between productivity and typical workers' compensation. Companies tell us, like, like literally companies tell us that work isn't that hard. We're paying you fairly. You know, like, like 
But I mean, like literally there was um, a story about the Navy that came out uh, this week where the Navy was shaming its officers and like lower subordinates saying that, you know, what you're doing isn't that hard. You know, you can put in more hours because the physical work isn't that tough. That is the, okay, first off, what you said, we are getting smarter as Americans year by year. Why should it be harder? Why do we have to physically pick up a pickaxe? Yeah, if if technology is advancing and there's more um, robots, computers doing stuff for us, shouldn't we be kicked back more? (laughs) Making more? (laughs) Why would we want to work more? (laughs) Amazon, the Navy, my company, who tried to stop the unionization, they all said the same thing, which is your jobs aren't that physically demanding. Sure, you're working 12 to 16 hours a day, but it's not that tough. Well, it may not be that tough, but I... Joe am more qualified than my great grandfather who worked in, you know, like fields and ranching. I'm way smarter than my grandpa. Like my IQ is higher. I've studied more. I have more degrees than he had. Why should I accept that I have to work as hard as he did physically or, or my alternative is apparently work 16 hours a day. Can I tell you what hack cheat these companies have and the industries have now? Oh, please. And you can see you can see a big spike here from 1980 to 2020, and this is what's happened. And I've seen this in my lifetime, in your lifetime too. You're younger. You're the oldest of the millennials. But cell phones, car phones, texting, emails have made it so you don't ever clock out of work. Yes. But they've expanded the workday from from four and a half to to seven days, and expanded each day as well. Just reading emails texting your boss back which we all do all the time absolutely my boss texted me before we started the show and i messaged her back and then i sent an email so like yes we do um looking at this graph to tell you what we're looking at and we're using that productivity formula we talked about um we peaked in pay in 1979 that's when we hit 100 percent non-supervisory compensation it has gone down a little after that, which is weird. Why did it go down 5% and then back up about, you know, 5 or 10%? Yet productivity went up from 1980. It was at 100%. That's when pay and productivity was at the same rate, 100%, 100%. Productivity has gone up to 160% in the last 40 years. Pay has remained the same. So I'm going to say that again. We were at our most productive, we, we were at our highest paid in 1980, just with inflation calculated in, and our, our productivity keeps going up like a mountain on this graph, pay levels off, it stays the same. So let's sum up here. America is the hardest working people that have existed, if you calculate how much time we spend working, how much we answer emails, how much we produce. If we are just talking, like I said, we turn raw goods into things we can sell, things we can send off, things we can share, services. If you just take that into calculation, we are the hardest working we have ever been. And we are compensated like we're living in the 1980s. And by far the most creative Absolutely. As yes. in creating new industries and new businesses more than any other country. A lot, most countries combined. If we're talking IQ, that's called the Flynn effect. 
We're as smart as we've ever been. We are as creative as we have ever been. We're getting paid like it's the 1980s and we're being told you guys aren't working that hard. And that is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> so here's the million dollar question and basically what we started the show asking. If you are an immigrant coming to America, what are the chances you'll get to work one of these high-wage jobs that Americans are so keen to pay handsomely for? We're not talking landscaping. Um, we're talking these highly paid jobs like you're a middle manager making above 100K or, or nuts to 100K. You are just doing an office job of some sort, making a livable wage. And if that sounds crazy, then we explored on another episode that, um, you know, what is it? More than 60% of people don't make the happiness index, which is only like 85,000, 70,000. So like you are first off, if you're making a livable wage and you're in the happiness index, you're in the minority. You, you made it. If you ever feel like you didn't make it in life, you did. The rest of us are catching up. So what are the chances an immigrant comes to America and ends up in one of those brackets? And there's an industry conspiracy to keep you happy and keep you content in what you're making, but give you more responsibilities at work. Yeah, a responsibility raise. Um, so this is from four years ago. So we're going uh, Pew Research. We're going to have our link to this. In 2018, fewer than a third of foreign-born workers were employed in occupations where social skills are the most important, like registered nurses, social services managers, and that's compared to um, about 45% of U.S.-born workers. So if you're U.S.-born, you have a 50-50 chance of being in a, you know, a happiness index paid, uh, you know, skilled, uh, skilled worker position. You're foreign-born, one in a th- one in third. Um, immigrants were more likely than U.S.-born workers to be employed in low-skilled jobs. I mean, that's the corollary. That obviously makes sense. The roles of immigration and U.S.-born workers are reversed with respect to their mechanical skills. You remember in our episode about um, Elon Musk and, like, college degrees, what they really give you? The soft skills where you, you know, networking, managing, talking, um, working with others, doing teamwork, project management. Those are all soft skills in quotes. Well, those aren't what we considered skilled anymore. Um, The more important jobs, the ones that actually pay more, aren't the necessary ones like um, machinery, mechanic, electrician. We're willing to pay an electrician a nearly livable wage. What we actually pay highly for is soft skills. We, we want you to manage a team that's managing our robots and algorithms. So we are weirdly prioritizing social jobs way higher than we are paying vocational jobs. Isn't that strange? From backbreaking necessity, you would think that would go to the front of the line because it needs to be done, right? It needs to be done and I don't want to do it. <laughs> now, it's funny you say that. Um, and it's something you can... You can measure. Yeah. You build a, a building, you build a wall, you build a bridge. That's something, right? As opposed to just <laughs> being popular at work, <laughs> moving we, men and women in a certain direction like cattle. <laughs> <laughs> We're eventually going to have an episode about um, how many jobs are unnecessary. Like we, I read an article saying that like 
20% of all jobs are just exist because we need to make roles for people to have who have college degrees for social things. So like we're kind of a, a nation that glorifies low working jobs, like these soft jobs. And we, we push off the, the hardworking jobs where you build America. We push that off onto other people, vocational people, immigrant people. So yeah, we, like I said, we don't want our teenagers, uh, working burger flipper and we don't want them when they grow up to work where they are breaking their back and like working at Jiffy Lube. We don't want them doing necessary things. We ironically want them to do unnecessary things that are soft and they'll still have a spine and knees by the time they hit 35. It's, it's weird that we all want our children to become the Michael Scott character from The Office, who is a goofy middle manager. And like we all recognize he's way overpaid for doing almost nothing. Ironically, that's now a prestige job. We all want our children doing that. We don't want them working in Jiffy Lube, repairing cars that we all desperately need. For anyone who hasn't seen it, there's a part in the Harlan County documentary where the sheriffs join the line against the strikers. Like they threaten them. They threaten the strikers. The other miners threaten the strikers. They bring in basically bullies, like like effectively thugs to threaten the strikers the strikers go to the city and in the documentary there are these moments where like people are standing on the street corners in the big city they're used to the appalachian mountains and so like they look out of place and they've got signs about harlan county (laughs) and a cop goes up to one of them and is like asking him questions like what are you doing here you know why are you on this corner what are you protesting it reminds me of like seeing um out-of-place protests in, in Portland. Like, I'll see a protest where somebody will hold a sign up for, like, free Tibet. And I'm like, I don't know anything about Tibetan Chinese politics. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what, what the war is about. Um, but, but this New York cop really empathizes with the people and, yeah. and, and gets it. It seems like an, a very American thing to do, right? Yeah. So to Go and get some help from a higher government. That's, okay, that's the part. That if we can end on a positive note that's it it's the local law around harlan county wanted to kill those strikers because they had been politicized they had been told these people these miners were un-american they you know they're they're socialists they they want to unionize those bastards these miners go to new york and are protesting there and seeking legal help they're not panhandling they're trying to rally support when they go to court, which is what they do. And the local cop there is like, oh, you poor bastards. <laughs> like the, so it's not about, you know, us versus the law. The law was like, you know, this, this New York cop is like, oh, you guys have, you know, we have unions. You know, our New York cops then, they had unions. He understood. He was like, you guys, you, you yeah, you guys are fighting it. Um, so that is basically where this 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 comes to an end. If you want to know how this shakes out, um, the courts found in favor of the miners. Obviously, um, it's such a great part in the show in the movie because you know, like you've got these these women from the mines, these these you know wives of dead miners singing songs about Harlan County while this court battle is going on. Obviously, not in court. 
And eventually the courts find that they're allowed to unionize, they're allowed to seek representation, and that the corporations had to either, you know, pay a competitive wage or let these miners go. Like they weren't allowed to just like stop them from unionizing, stop them from having representation, not pay them and keep them there. All of that together, that's called serfdom. You can't do that to a human. It just came to me why the reason why we didn't see any immigrants in this movie that we watched. This real life documentary that was very, very telling and very detailed. You know why, Joe? No, why is that? Because they were in the mind working this whole time. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to The Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredu.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and articles for each of our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything.